Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill, where you get two film and or media discussions for the price of one. Which is... nothing. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to randomly select the yin and yang of a double feature. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for each episode. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani. And I am Adam Thomas. And we are here in the long ago, before man actually existed. And we are here to talk with one of the most prehistoric creatures of our age... The Scott Johnson. Listen, listen, everyone, as it tries to talk. Scott, talk. <laughs> Beautiful. How you doing, Scott? Doing okay. Doing okay. <laughs> uh, but in case you couldn't tell from that, uh, we are doing an episode all no, about... No, they couldn't tell from that. No, <laughs> no one can tell from no, that. No, I have no idea what hey, that was. Hey, I'll give you the experience. I was a stegosaur in a fourth grade play. <laughs> Exactly, because we are talking about dinosaurs this week. Uh, the week this is coming out, uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is being released. And uh, so let's... Yeah, let's talk about good movies with dinosaurs. Yeah. Let's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm judging it now, because uh, fuck Jurassic World. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah, not, not a good movie. But do you like dinosaurs in general in cinema, Adam? Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily one of my go-to, but I don't have any problems with them. It's not like I I consider myself a dinosaur movie fan, but uh, yeah, I mean I don't shy away from it either. I mean Jurassic Park the original was fucking mind blowing, but uh, that's you know I'd argue that's the last good dinosaur movie. Maybe maybe we can test that. Um, but Scott, you're not going to be involved in the actual discussion part when we get to it. Um, but are you a fan of dinosaurs in cinema? Oh, yeah, definitely. I grew up with dinosaurs. I do love them. I have very distinct memories of watching Jurassic Park and the sequel. And, of course, as we talked about last podcast, love the first Land Before Time. Very influential. Dinosaurs need to make a comeback, but with good movies. Yes. Yes, indeed, they do. Um, And we're going to talk about both good and bad dinosaur movies. And, um, of course, Scott, this is your uh, first time doing the picking. So here's the gun and get ready to shoot. Because uh, first, we have the two good movies that you will select a number between 1 and 10 for, of my choosing, and then you will do the same for Adam's two bad picks. So, number between 1 and 10, Scott. Alright, let's load up this horse tranquilizer. Uh, three. At number four is uh, a movie we were actually just talking about, the original Jurassic Park. Is what oh, yes, do. I cannot wait to talk about this fucking movie. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, though at number five wasn't anything uh, too slow. And interesting, I think the oldest movie we've ever tried to select was uh, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. That's a great movie, dude. Good call. It, it is, yes, and it's a really good dinosaur movie. But uh, we got that good one. And now, load up that horse tranquilizer again, Scott, because now it's time for the bad from Adam. Well, I think you'll need something stronger than horse, so let's move up to elephant. Number nine. 
at number 10. It's the fuck. I'm sorry, Thomas. The, the Whoopi Goldberg Theodore Rex. Oh my God, we're doing Theodore Rex. Yes. It's gonna be yes, so terrible. <laughs> and at number one, I had Jurassic World. Oh wow! I'm glad we didn't repeat ourselves. This yeah. is gonna be great. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. so excited. Uh, we have another guest that will be coming on. Um, but Scott, thank you for joining us here. Um, last minute plugs real quick before you vacate the premises. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Scott PJ Thoughts. That is Scott with two T's, letter P, letter J. Uh, if you like craft beer and drinking to get through Theodore Rex, you can find me on porchdrinking.com. Um, and also if you like Stardust, where you might see a review of another dinosaur movie, uh, you can find me on my username, SilkyPJ. That is Silky with I-E at the end, and PJ. Yes, and in this time, when Scott was plugging things, I stole his tranquilizer gun. So here's a dinosaur tranquilizer. Bye, Scott! Oh, no. Well, we gotta hide this body, and then watch our double feature. So we'll be back right after this. The future's toughest cop is Katie Coltrane. I'm back. And now, she's getting a new partner. His name is Teddy. Hit me. He's a dinosaur. You two have solved this case together. What? What? It's a dinosaur. New partner, Coltrane. (laughs) New Line Cinema presents... Are you think you're going to get somebody? (laughs) Whoopi Goldberg. And introducing... Teddy, Theodore Rex. It's a tale you'll never forget. And we are back, and uh, we're welcoming another guest after Scott was here in the intro. Uh, our first returning guest ever. This is a milestone. Sam Bertuxen, who you might have heard from the Star Wars episode. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm here to talk about uh, puppet dinosaurs, mostly the plasticky kind. In case you can tell, I'm referring to Theodore Rex. <laughs> I mean, he, he's very rubbery. But Sam, the reason I asked you to be back on here is because even more so than you're a Star Wars fan, I know you are a bear, very, very big fan of dinosaurs in film. Those are very big words. I'm a very subtle fan. I'm not very out there. I'm not very outgoing about my fan of, of giant lizards. But no, I am. <laughs> my favorite dinosaur is the Diplodipus. Oh, you don't know that one? A bit more obscure for you. <clears throat> Yeah, how about that Diplodocus? <laughs> Diplodocus. <laughs> <laughs> Sam is you not a paleontologist, that? at least a confirmed one. Not a confirmed one. You call that a fucking baryonyx? <laughs> <laughs> like our situation with the heist episode we did a couple weeks ago, um, we're going to start with our bad feature, because I don't know if we have a lot to say about it, even though it's a fascinating film in terms of how it really became to be, and is ultimately a very infamous example of what the fuck Hollywood. Uh, it is Theodore Rex, which uh, was released July 2nd, 1996, uh, straight to video. It's our first straight to video feature that we've done. Interestingly, it was originally meant for a theatrical release, um, but unfortunately it was determined, based on terrible test screenings, to not have the C, the silver screen, um, but maybe that's not unfortunate. Maybe that's incredibly appropriate, because this movie's garbage. Yeah, I don't think it should have seen anything. This should have been just dumped in the desert somewhere. 
should be buried with the fossils. Shouldn't have yep. been unearthed at all. Would you agree with that, Sam? You know what? I don't appreciate the lies. I think this is a very big film. It is tremendous in that it is a movie about racial diversity, about racism in our current society. Excuse me, Sam. Di- speciesism. Speciesism. Sorry. It's almost as if the dinosaurs are black people in this movie. <laughs> and the black person is the racist. It's like bright origins. What a Aww. fucking role reversal. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know what the fuck this is, um, this is a film starring Whoopi Goldberg as a futuristic cop who might be a cyborg? They kind of tease yeah, that. maybe. She could be. There's a point where she gets, like, struck with electrical whatever, and she just pauses, so I guess she's a cyborg? I don't know. Point is, she's Whoopi Goldberg, and she is a tough-as-nails cop who loses her partner in the line of duty. Okay, you're gonna get a new, uh, partner to help you out. And that partner is a genetically engineered humanoid T-Rex. Oh. (laughs) The the hilarity (laughs) just comes out. So hardcore. Um, yes, Theodore Rex is her partner now. This In this world where it's explained that dinosaurs have been created by this one character, the um, Elazar Kane, who also is the villain of the movie, who is trying to destroy all life on Earth. Which they tell well, you within the first five seconds of the movie. Including telling so, you the opening scene that happens yep. mere milliseconds after the crawl ends. Yep. I mean, and it's not even a mystery what the who the villain is, what the what its ultimate goal is, anything. So within like the first, like you said, milliseconds of the movie, th- there's no point to watch the movie. You know everything that's going on already. That's not true. We don't know that he didn't like uh, cookies before. Oh, yeah, and, I'll give you that. Give and you he that, has a sure. special machine built to, to fucking slingshot cookies into his mouth. Yeah, and also, like, we talked last week about Rockadoodle, which is a movie clearly trying to ape on the success of Roger Rabbit, mainly through, like, the live-action animation elements. But this is also trying to do that in terms of it's a buddy cop comedy where you have a special effects creature as your partner for the main character. And the differences in Roger Rabbit, like, the world feels realistic, and it feels like it's lived in, and people know what's going on, versus this movie... It's so complicated with its world and also with its sort of subject matter that I think it's trying to be a kid's movie, but then at times it gets, like, really way too dark to be a kid's movie. So it's really just a case of, like, who the fuck is this for? Spoilers, no one. But... Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely no, no one. It's made by someone built for no one. Including Whoopi Goldberg, who infamously tried to get out of doing this movie after she made a verbal agreement. And what a through- shock. And, try, and actually, the producer filed a $20 million lawsuit um, uh, that was settled after she agreed to star in the movie for $7 million as opposed to $2 million that she'd originally asked for. And uh, watching the movie, it's almost as if you can tell, because she hates being there. It's also like her character was written to be a huge racist. <laughs> I think the screenwriter had like some sort of beef against Whoopi Goldberg, because every time she's on screen, she always has to... like be incredibly asshole-ish. Um, and of course it's because it's the whole good cop, bad cop routine. But it's done with this whole stem of like, it's, it's trying to have this political commentary in the background that doesn't work at all. It's it's very, it's incredibly muddled. Not to mention that Blue Frame Roger Rabbit works because of its at the time it's set in. This doesn't make any sense because it's in the future yet it feels like a 50s detective noir. Like it doesn't make any sense. It's Blade Runner, Sam. Come on, clearly. Mm-hmm. 
Didn't you yeah. love that scene where Theodore Rex was just like, all these moments will disappear like tears in rain. Cookies! <laughs> right, somebody with his tail. Uh, you know, you said this. You know, this movie's made for no one, and I, I absolutely agree with you. But I mean, clearly, I think it was marketed towards children. I mean, in the limited marketing it had. Now, honestly, when you guys were kids, if you saw this, would you enjoy this movie? I can tell you, as a kid, I saw this movie. Oh. And like, I just remember Theodore Rex and two scenes. But after that, it was like an enigma. Like I couldn't figure out what I watched. It was like I was watching The Da Vinci Code, just trying a piece of puzzles that Tom Hanks went along, except Tom Hanks was Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> and, like, that was my cipher. That was, that was the, my, my person who I was relating to the entire time. But, no, it wasn't good. Yeah, um, this is my first time seeing it in full. Um, I've seen clips just from, like, online reviewer people, like Red Letter Media, did you know, uh, the best of the worst and stuff like that. And I'm just like, wow, this looks like such garbage. I, I can't believe it actually exists. And watching the movie in full... It's, it's weird, because I could maybe see a world in which someone might have greenlit this back in the early 90s, but you could tell it was also a movie where the moment they got on set, and the moment that puppet came out, and the moment they realized, oh, this is sub-Dinosaurs, the ABC series, they just realized, yeah, we've made a huge mistake. <laughs> that's totally what confused me, because I thought this had some sort of correlation with that TV show, because it's like, oh, it's like Dinosaurs, eh, but it's, uh, it's in the future? Because, like, the puppets look similar to the, the actual puppets on uh, the the show. So when I'm watching this, I have that huge confusion. I'm like, what the fuck is this going on? Is this tied to that or not? Well, it's interesting. That's a show that um, dealt with, you know, had these big animatronic dinosaurs doing humanoid things. And also had social commentary. Um, and also had sort of, like, a appeal for kids, but also adults. But the difference is it's missing, what's the word? Talent. It's, it's a shame, too, because I've, I've read some interesting things about the production of this movie, including because Whoopi Goldberg hated being on the set so much. The lead puppeteer, Bruce Linoli, talked about being on the set, and the first day of production, it, the puppet wouldn't work. And he was so worried, he had Whoopi Goldberg looking bitterly down at his face, saying, Is this thing gonna fucking work? And he's like, We're, we're trying. It's like, Boy, better! And then leaving. So that's the mood on the set. Yeah, it's a very it's a big downer. Yeah, and also Teddy, as he's called in the movie, doesn't shut the fuck up the whole time he's on screen. He's always talking every second in the movie, and for no reason other than he's just a silly giant dinosaur detective. That's yeah. it. I mean, it it was so grating after like the first five minutes. I'm like this fucking thing. It's a movie where you can clearly tell in editing, they're like, oh, there's something missing. Hey, George Newbern, why don't you come in and record some ADR? Like, there's so much ADR, like, fill awkward moments. It's like, you don't need that. You can build, like, mood or suspense or anything like that, but you just want to have him talk over and over again. And by the way, I didn't know this. George Newbern was the fiancé slash husband from the Father of the Bride movies. I didn't know he was yeah, doing the voice. And you can yeah. tell he's not a comedian. He's also the uh, voice... <laughs> Voice of Superman in most of the animated versions. Yeah, post, like, from Justice League onward, he's been the voice of Superman, yeah. yeah. That's crazy. So, since we obviously all really don't like this movie, do any of us have one part that either made us laugh or we actually thought was kind of good? I can tell you, it's I can pinpoint exactly, it's a moment that's so good it feels like it was most likely an outtake. There's a point where they go to a bar filled with extinct species, 
which were led around by a character who, if this was made in 2016, would have said, Yas, queen, dinosaurs. Like, he's that over-the-top, a gay stereotype. There's a point where Whoopi Goldberg is talking to a dinosaur that just, like, has a weird, stupid grin on its face, and she starts laughing, and she just says, And you think you're gonna get somebody? And then just walks away. That's a moment that I'm very sure Whoopi Goldberg just made up on the spot. Just, like, during an outtake, and they're like, fuck, let's put it in. It's the one genuine moment Whoopi Goldberg has of any kind of enjoyment in the movie. Like, that wasn't a fake drink, I believe she had not said. That was an actual hard bourbon she was drinking or something. That was surreal. Even Would you blame me. her, though, Sam? Would you blame her no, for doing it? Oh, I'd be loaded. I the puppeteers who had to, who had to do this, either. <laughs> I would have blamed the goddamn puppet. <laughs> Sam, do you have a moment? My one moment... Is is honestly, it's the thing you probably hate. It's when Theodore Rex is muttering to himself. Whenever there's a serious moment happening off screen, like a genuinely serious moment, one or two like lines of dialogue he would say, like for some reason, maybe chuckle, just for a clear absurdity. Not because it was good, but just because of the absurdity of it. And maybe realize that this movie, if it had a more self-aware script, it would have been Blade Runner. But with Theodore Rex acting like himself throughout the entire movie, but everything's just dead serious. <laughs> and like, but like the problem though is just like it, it's all about like the the dialogue and the fact that like it's trying to be marketed towards children. Yet there's a gruesome death that happens in the beginning of the first ten minutes of the movie that's really fucked up. Actually, I had no idea that the, the body was actually stripped naked. And then later, like, a dinosaur autopsy as well. Dinosaur autopsy, yeah. Like, uh, but, I don't want to that. <laughs> but but to get back to that thing you're talking about, Adam, what about you? You you brought this on us. Do you have a moment? Yeah, I do. I, I just found it very funny. The way Theodore dresses, or Teddy, whatever you want to call him, the whole movie. He's got his sweater, his coat, his pants, and his shoes, you know. So they go to that thing to get him a disguise. <laughs> it shows him with, you know, he's a Viking and then he's a uh like a um gunslinger and everything, and then his disguise that Whoopi Goldberg's character is like, oh, now he looks like a cop, is a different colored sweater, a different colored jacket, <laughs> a different colored pair of pants. <laughs> that's it. Did you notice that his shoes, like his toes, actually had separate laces as well? I did. And I like that they're undercover in a garbage truck with the police symbol on the side of the garbage truck. <laughs> yeah. As they walk out in clear daylight, people noticing them pass by. I know, and she's still in her cop uniform the whole movie. You know, I'll also say, somebody who I appreciated, who was sort of my surrogate throughout the whole movie, is Richard Roundtree, Shaft himself, as the commissioner, who the entire movie just looks constantly like, I hate these fucking people who work under me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anytime he sees the dinosaur, he's like, Teddy? Like, what other dinosaur would it be? Well, this is a world where dinosaurs are all over the place. After all, we have a torch singer one voiced by Carol yeah. Kane. Yeah. Uh, who who looks pretty much like they just cloned the same puppet and just put a dress on it. Oh, completely. And there's also just weird world-building moments. Like, they have a funeral for a dinosaur, like the dinosaur who died at the beginning, and they have this whole thing of, like, they liquefy it, and it's like, oh, he's going to be put into the soil and feed these flowers. And it's like, you know... Maybe that could have worked if you actually, like, built the world up more. That's a detail that on its own could have been interesting. But just in context, they brush over, like, yeah, you know, this is how it works. 
Yeah, well, it's it's moments like that, and also they try to, to make us understand the dinosaurs by making them state that they're just like human beings. Like that moment I mentioned with the the the, the crime scene, Whoopi Goldberg comes in and says like, "You have you have sympathy for this dinosaur," and she's like, "Well, it's this weird thing where we feel for each other." And like, if this was a clever screenwriter, he she would have just flat said, "Yeah, it's this thing called compassion." <laughs> Like, it's, like, it's missing that at least that start of, like, uh, an actually good comeback, but it doesn't have any of that. It just states the most, well, no shit they have feelings for each other. It's like they're a community in a, in a suburban area. It's it's like they're an allegory for something. Now, excuse me, I gotta create my own cookie machine. <laughs> cookies, cookies, cookies. Because that's, that's his thing. That's his thing. He loves that, cookies. <laughs> that's his character quirk, because he loves cookies. Just a curious few bits. The cast in this movie is very weird. We mentioned Richard Roundtree's in here. Uh, Stephen McHady, who we'd recognize, is uh, playing the sort of underling of the main villain, uh, who looks exactly like the villain from The Crow, uh, with his long hair. Bud Court is more annoying than he's ever been, as another underling with his fucking oh, ver- version oh. of like the Foot Clan from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. Oh, fucking hated those those henchmen so much. Because they all talk with, like, the -the over-the-top squeaky voices and clearly ADR'd, like, maniacal laughs that are just garbage. Because it's it's definitely, it's a movie that's so talking down to any kid that would watch it, of just, like, kids cannot watch a movie unless it's constant noise. Like, they can't enjoy a movie at all unless there is wall-to-wall noise of some sort. And I I think there's there's no silent point of the soundtrack at all. No. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's scenes... Where there's three characters completely talking over each other. And you can't even... It's like, wait a second. Who the hell is talking right now? You know, you and Sam alluded to earlier. It, it, it's non-stop dialogue. There's non-stop dialogue or crazy noises or, you know, cookie shooters or whatever the fuck just going off. It, it, oh. Now, if you had whatever the, the movie producer equivalent of a, of a car salesman would be... Like, that person would just come and say, Now, kid, do you want to hear a dinosaur talk for every fucking second of this movie? And he talk about cookies? And he makes fart jokes? Well, here you go, kids. Eat it up. And that's what this would be like. Oh, my God. The fart jokes. Especially, they come in, like, in the later part of the movie. So you know they're just like, We gave up, kids. We, we, we don't we care. Up. We don't what care. What kids how- like? Kids like the farts. Put it in. <laughs> farts are hot right now. The kids love the farts. <laughs> I the, the interrogation scene is probably the worst bit in, in the movie because it's like it's the, the laziest thing you could do for interrogation scene. And like I thought they were gonna lean toward more. Well, he's a giant carnivore, so he's probably gonna threaten them by just attempting to eat them. But it gets worse by by him just just sitting down, and someone just farting like all the time. Also, and what's up with stop. in that warehouse scene? There's the character who's just literally he's like, "I'm the guy in the bag." Not a dinosaur. Not anything. Just a weird puppet. Why? My wife watched it with me, and she thought the same thing. She She's like, wait a second. What the hell was that? I'm like, I have no idea. She's like, yeah, no. That, what? <laughs> like, she just, we had to rewind it. They I still don't ran- understand what it was. <laughs> they clearly ran out of money for dinosaur puppets, so it was just like, what random-ass Jim Henson knockoff do we have available? And we have right. that. Because fuck it. It's, it's a weird fantasy world. You don't care. And we don't care either. And it just adds to, like, this whole world just feels less like any kind of surreal, weird world and more like a McDonald's commercial. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, I could see <laughs> Although, that. With, like, Grandma skateboarding in the background and shit like that. Probably. Well, <laughs> right. Grandma's so cool. Right, right exactly. <laughs> I'm gonna go to McDonald's. <laughs> Let's get to our final thoughts about Theodore Rex. Sam, our guest, go first. Well, I want to point out and say that the first phone call Rex receives is poorly coordinated. Because it's they're not in sync with each other. Like she, like the the operator is just responding, but just casually. And it's it's I don't know. If you re rewatch that scene and just go back, look at that, and just notice how disconnected the dialogue is between the two. And that's basically what you're getting throughout the entire movie. It's like you're getting two tonal whiplash throughout this entire movie, and but not in a way that's interesting, in a way that's very mundane, surprisingly dull at points. And even despite my vastly, vastly insane curiosity of Theodore Rex himself, even that can prevent this movie from just being, I would sadly say, a waste of time. <laughs> well, on that lovely note, Adam, your final thoughts on Theodore Rex. This movie is fucking drag. I've seen a lot of bad movies, especially in the last seven weeks. But <laughs> 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 this... This, holy shit, man. I can't even explain my disdain for this movie. When it ended, I would I just wanted to sit up and just shit screams from my face. You know, I quit. <laughs> Take a drink. This is the, this is the one. <laughs> this is the one that pushed me over the fucking edge. Didn't you just uh, want to do anything else throughout the entire movie? Like, just literally just anything, anything else? Anything else. It's made for nobody. Nope. I can't see anybody enjoying this movie. Even on a so bad it's good level, or even like just a morbid curiosity because of its reputation, within ten minutes you're gonna be like, "Oh fuck, I get it." It's definitely an example. You fucking love cookies. (laughs) 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 Um, I mean, all the sentiments are shared from both you gentlemen, but I'll also say that you know Adam mentioned the idea like it's not even so bad it's good level because it is definitely a great example of a terrible comedy that you can't really enjoy. Because it's very obnoxiously trying to get you to laugh. Like, hey, laugh at that. You said cookies. Fuck off. We're trying to make you laugh. Laugh. And you can tell that, and your ribs just get sore by the end of it. And there's just so much lazy filmmaking, lazy writing. Especially, we didn't even mention his whole pacifist arc that isn't an arc <laughs> at all. Um, where he's just like, oh man, I don't use a gun. And Whoopi Goldberg's like, you're a cop and you're not going to use a gun. And later she's like, as much as I regret to say this, you were right. You you shouldn't use a gun in this case. What made you think that? You just got shot by a gun, and it hurt you. So maybe in this situation you might want to use a gun. I don't know. It's dumb. It's a very terrible movie that I'm glad has sort of just been more obscure than anything else. I would rather see a movie about the making of this movie than I would ever want anyone to see it again. This is a movie that should be like that death and <laughs> the death of Superman lives documentary, but just like, what the fuck happened? How was this a thing? Um, that would be far more interesting to me. Yeah, I'd watch that. Yes, um, especially if just a lot of footage of Whoopi Goldberg being real about the movie would be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Especially now, just like modern Whoopi, just like, oh, Whoopi's the, the neighborhood grandma who everybody loves, just like getting a cigarette, like, listen, let me tell you about Theodore X. It can go mm-hmm. fuck itself. Um, would be why, more fascinating. Why is Whoopi Goldberg like an Italian from New Jersey? <laughs> Look, that's, that's just my impression of anybody who's bitter. Anyway, this movie is terrible, and we should wipe it from the slate because now we have 
a movie that I think most of us uh, kind of like. Uh, pretty good, right? Um, our, our feature that's uh, pretty good. Jurassic Park. What the fuck is this movie? <laughs> To Jurassic Park. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. How'd you do this? Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Sure. An adventure. Look out! No! I can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park. But yes, Jurassic Park, uh, which came out in the summer of 1993, June 11th, 1993. We're recording this the very week of its 25th anniversary. Um, and as we mentioned, it's directed by Steven Spielberg, uh, written by David Coep, who previously uh, we covered his work with Mordecai, um, how the mighty have sprung and continue to do such great work. Yeah, uh, you all know what this movie is. You've seen this movie, probably. Um, and we're all aware that we all pretty much love it, right? No, please explain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never never seen it. What's it about? <laughs> well, you know Jurassic World? It's like that, but good. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know oh, Jurassic the one with World? the Star-Lord? Yeah, I know that one. <laughs> you know Jurassic World? It's like that, but you can actually tell what the archetypes are and you have good dialogue. Very true. So, you know what, I want to ask Sam, uh, being such a big dinosaur lover, was this the movie that sparked that curiosity, or was there an earlier movie that sparked that? It was actually Connoisseur. A bit later <laughs> in time, but it was Connoisseur. That was Jurassic Park. Um, no, Jurassic Park is definitely what sparked that. It's what caused a huge dinosaur boom during early to mid-90s, I would say, um, with a lot of stuff like Prehysteria, as I mentioned, Connoisseur, sadly, Theodore Rex, anything that was dinosaur-related got a huge kickstart off of Jurassic Park, for better or for worse. Mostly worse. Mostly worse. Mostly but worse. All of them. <laughs> what about Adam? I'm guessing uh, you saw this obviously at the time it came out and loved it, right? Yeah, I, I went to the show and saw this uh, with my mom and I believe my brother. And uh, this movie is single-handedly responsible for two things. One is, I think it's the first movie I saw at the show that actually scared me. The whole goat leg scene just freaked me out because I think I was like eight. And then it just made me love Jeff Goldblum. This movie's just, it's one of Spielberg's best, I think, personally. And none of the sequels compare, even come close to comparing to this one. Even the one Spielberg made himself. Yep. And why do you think that is? Why, why, why do you think, uh, what is missing from those movies, even some of these other dinosaur movies Sam mentioned, that sort of come to light here and are so wonderful? Well, I'll tell you what the problem I think is with the sequel, uh, especially the second one. It it has Agent Smith syndrome for me, where, you know, like Agent Smith in the Matrix, clearly he was killed off and he was, you know, just the secondary character, but everybody loved him, so he came back as the main character. Uh, Same thing here with Ian Malcolm. He Come on. There's no way Michael Crichton wrote Jurassic Park with the sequel in mind with Ian Malcolm being the star of it. Everybody loved Ian Malcolm from the movie, so there you go. There's Ian Malcolm as the main character. Um, he's better as a secondary character. But what I think's missing from all the other dinosaur movies, uh, one is budget, two is care, 
And it was new technology. New things were being explored to make this movie work. By the time it got, you know, three years later to awful Theodore Rex, look at the CGI cityscape in that and how bad it is oh, in God, comparison we, we to didn't talk anything. About the we didn't talk about that, yeah. but that's awful. And it's three years later. Well, and also even the animatronics. There are several points yeah. of Theodore Rex where literally there's a point where Theodore is interrogating somebody and his eye droops down like he's a drunk he's just, or having a stroke of some sort. Uh, as, and even here, you know, uh, famously, not as bad as Jaws, uh, but Jurassic Park had some production difficulties with the animatronic dinosaurs. There's great footage of in the making of, of the T-Rex in the rain, big infamous like sort of gate scene, shaking yeah. like he's got the DTs. Just like, uh... Yeah, because he was getting waterlogged. Yeah. Yeah, all the latex was soaking up the water. And, you know, we mentioned uh, Ralph Bakshi last week and how his combination of different animation styles was sort of missing mm. later on. Um, I think that's a big key factor to this movie, is that you have the great combination of computer effects and animatronics that really work. And also, uh, something interesting is that originally we were going to have just the CG dinosaurs actually be go motion, stop motion, from Phil Tippett, who you would, might recognize as he did a lot of the work in like the Star Wars movies that was stop motion, and also RoboCop, he did all the stop motion, Ed 209 stuff. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg realized, like, you know, we're going to try and do CG. But at the same time, they still used Phil Tippett on the set, especially, to map out a lot of the motions that would seem realistic, because, you know, he did a great job in a lot of those movies of really getting the realistic feel of those characters and creatures moving. And it really shows, and this is so many different artistic people being combined here, like him, or Dennis Muren, who did a lot of the CG stuff, um, or Stan Winston, of course, did the practical animatronics. Um, there's a great combination of these various different styles coming together to make something so unique and whole, and also for a very limited amount of time, because I didn't even realize this until watching it, there are only 15 minutes of dinosaurs in the movie. Wow, that's crazy. I could tell that uh, instantly when I was, um, not rewatching it recently, but like, when I rewatched it, like, five or six years ago, I was like, there's a very minimal amount of dinosaurs in the movie, but when they do appear, they have, leave a lasting effect on you, I noticed. It's what we call the Beetlejuice Syndrome, where Beetlejuice is right. only in Beetlejuice for, like, about 17 minutes of the movie, but you can't tell because of how well edited the movie is, and also just when they do show up, like Sam says, they make a big impact, even when they don't, they do. Like, there's the whole thing where the raptors are eating the cow. Not a single dinosaur in that chat, in any of that sequence at all. Yeah, that's true. It's what a good monster movie should be, because a lot of them refuse to acknowledge the fact that, like, what builds this movie is its cast, and every performance in this movie is is pretty great. I would say Jeff Goldblum, uh, regardless of what you might say of him, is the big standout. I would say for me, even to this day, and it, and it grows on me even more every time I rewatch it. Because man, that glistening uh, chest. It always gets you every time. <laughs> well, and plus, he's so weird because, like, he's, you know, Richard Anburn calls him, like, the rock star of the group. But at the same time, he's such a weird nerd. So weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's this weird character where he's a combination of so many different things. But you can see the charm. Like, you can see why Laura Dern's kind of falling for him. But also, you kind of fall for Laura Dern because she's great, too. She's shy, kind of nebbishy. But when the dinosaurs actually show up, she just goes into full kind of geek mode and her face lights up. And even with Sam Neill, who's kind of, you know, more of, like, the curmudgeon cross guy. You still you, you see the awe. That's a big thing, is especially in the sequels. The awe factor is lost, because obviously you're going back. But that's what kind of makes this movie work, is that it is 
awe-inspiring and terrifying to see these creatures. Like, it makes you realize if you were in the space with these dinosaurs, you'd share a similar mixed feeling of, like, this is so beautiful. They're chasing after me. Oh, my God, they're so majestic but terrifying. It's... Oh, God, my legs are being eaten, but they look so beautiful. (laughs) That's how I would die in Jurassic Park, too. That's how everyone would die. If you go to Jurassic Park and the first instinct is just like, oh man, this dinosaur is chasing after me. But fuck, it's a dinosaur. Like, your legs are going to be eaten. That's fine. That's a way to go out. Because it really feeds into a childhood fascination. Spielberg talked about this in, along with rewatching Jurassic Park. I was rewatched, uh, I got the Blu ray. I rewatched the making of Jurassic Park, which is so admittingly nostalgically tied. Because I watched that just as much as I did the movie when I was a kid, with James Earl Jones narrating, talking about the whole making of the movie. And oh my god, I completely forgot about that. I love that so much. Oh when I was a my kid. god, I've seen that so many times too. <laughs> this is awesome. It's but, pretty stellar. But Spielberg talks about the idea that as a kid, dinosaurs don't exist, but you're so fascinated by the idea of them when you like go to museums and stuff like that that it builds a mythology, even though it's real. It's a real thing that existed on our Earth, and we find new evidence about it every day. But dinosaurs is an interesting mythology, especially as a child. Like, everybody goes through a dinosaur phase between ages, like, two and six. Right? Like, you have little toy dinosaurs and shit. You love dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes you don't grow out of them. Wink, wink. (laughs) Sam still has his dinosaur toys from when he was seven. I'm still dressed like that kid in in the first scene of the movie. Where it's just like, that's bullshit. And I'm wearing my striped shirt and my hat. As Alan Grant comes up to me and says, listen, kid, I hate you. <laughs> the thing I really appreciate upon this watch with Alan Grant especially is just that Sam Neill has a great face that's also menacing. Like, there's a warmth that comes in occasionally, but his face is so angular in an interesting way and sort of points out at you. Like, I love the bit where the raptor hatches and he asks, what species is this? And it's lit perfectly where, like, half his face is cascaded in darkness. And they say, oh, it's a velociraptor. It's like, you bred raptors. And looks down at him. I just, I, I love how angular his face is, and it really works for him. It, it fits into sort of, like, the pop archetype of his character. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I love that, you know, it's so funny that you brought that up. He almost seems to lose that part of his features once he warms up to the kids in the later third of the movie, where he becomes, you know, like, their guardian, basically, trying to protect him, and he's making the jokes, you know, like, and Big Tim, the human piece of toast. <laughs> Stuff like that. I mean... <laughs> I love... I, Sam Neill's so awesome in this There's, I can't think of one performance I, I don't like. You know, so I want to uh, comment on this, because a lot of people have issue, like, whenever I hear people complain at all about Jurassic Park, it's with... Well, fuck the, them, first of all. Well, well right, but th- to hear them out, I've heard a lot of people have issue with the kids. Tim and Lex, Joseph Mazzello and Ariana Richards, respectively, for like, oh my god, they do stupid stuff, why do the kids do this, why do the kids do that? They're, I wouldn't do that in Jurassic Park. Yes, you would. Yes, you fucking would, you right. cowards. <laughs> Why are the kids doing that in this movie about a fictional, like, sci-fi theme park with dinosaurs in it? Who gives a shit? So what, the kid can hack a computer? So the fuck what? There's a raptor trying to bust through the door. But even you got a problem with the kid hacking? Even regardless of that, it's it's more just I've heard, like, oh my god, why do you bring out the flash? Like, that's dumb, this is dumb, that's dumb. They're kids! They're scared! Well, yeah, plus... Anybody who's like, even the paleontologists who are barely able to comprehend this, because it's like, we understand 
vague things about dinosaurs we know from fucking digging up their bones also right. have the, like terror but at the same time they don't these kids don't even have that so they're naturally terrified even the lawyer's terrified like that which credit to uh, Martin Farrow I love Martin Farrow in this movie um, for just moments like um, we could have uh, a coupon day or or even um, when he's talking about like oh, what is this? these are these scientists are their um, what auto erotica which is a line I forgot about that's so good in the middle of this um, yeah but like those people are realistic grounded characters who people don't want to accept because it's like well I'm viewing this from a third party perspective therefore I know exactly what not to do fuck you if you're in a first person perspective you have no idea what to do in the situation it's even uh, comforting to know that Sam Neill's character uh, Dr. Alan Grant actually winds up being really sympathetic towards the children despite his 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 other despise of being around kids, he winds up being very sympathetic in that case because he becomes a hero to them uh, after that. And I really dig the way his, his his character arc goes throughout the entire movie. Started from the beginning where he's very like he's a little 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 indie, a uh, little Indiana Jones in him. But uh, other than that, he grows into his own character by the end, and he you just really love him. And we should also talk about I think. A character who I, especially upon this rewatch, I really even love more, despite the fact that he's kind of the villain of the movie, but you can't help but kind of be enamored with him, is Richard Attenborough as John Hammond. Um, especially because, upon this rewatch, I really realized a big part of the world building that nobody really talks about that I truly love about this movie. As a kid who grew up in Orlando, went to Disney and Universal Studios a lot, the world building of this theme park is tremendous. Mm-hmm. It, it really feels like this could be a place that exists that would be a tourist trap for people who would be able to go on this island. But at the same time, like with him, you really get that sense that he is a nebbish kind of quiet guy who wants to be a showman, who wants to be that guy, especially with like the flea circus bit. He's somebody who like has a lot of money and loves the idea of showcasing a big thing for people to watch. And you can see that enthusiasm on his face and the true regret and remorse that happens as things start falling apart. But then his acceptance by the end of it of like, this is unsafe. I can't keep this going anymore. My grandchildren are at stake. Um, It's so awesome. Especially, I didn't even think about this. This is Spielberg directing the director who beat him for best director for E.T. Oh, no shit. That's right. Because Attenborough won for Gandhi that year. I didn't even think about that until this rewatch. Do you think they like fought? Like, had a fist fight and stuff before they started filming. <laughs> Clearly. That's exactly <laughs> like, what happened. <laughs> went out in the jungle, took their shirts off. Had a man versus wild situation. They're just pelting each other with amber fossils. <laughs> yeah. We're settling with this shit now, Edinburgh. <laughs> but, uh, what's... Girl. Clever girl, yes. But, uh, Sam, what about his character and also the, sort of the theme park world building? What do you think about all that? Believe it or not, as a, as a, as a huge fan when I was a child... Uh, his character, actually, he, he had that warmth to him that felt like he was inviting me personally to the park. Uh, and in a way that wasn't, like, it's similar to the way, like, like Disney was. But it's done in a way where he has a na- naivete that a child would have, and that seems sort of enthusiasm. I think that's a huge part of why I, I grew to really love dinosaurs is because it's actually partly because of him, because... He has that same sort of fanaticism about him whenever he's talking about dinosaurs or whenever he's talking about the structure of the park. Um, and even the end where he, he that remorse you mentioned, 
plays a huge factor into it and that the relatability to me that makes them even better than every time i watch a movie i always like find new things with this character also really do not like his interpretation in the book just want to quickly bring that up because he's a shitty uh grandpa he's also a shitty uh park uh runner uh just a shitty human being in general and i don't like that because it's a it's a it's an archetype we've seen a dozen times just like oh look it's a ceo doesn't care about anyone except himself but here it was refreshing because it was this park runner this massive billionaire who actually wanted to show something and he had money to put into it, but he wasn't driven by greed. He was driven by his own innovation to do that. Driven by a real, yeah. like, mad desire. One man's dream, much like Walt Disney, um, to do something crazy, something weird. Only instead of doing Epcot, the city of the future, it's Dinosaur Park. Right. And, you know, it's funny what Sam said. You know, he's not just some greedy, stereotypical CEO, blah, blah. That's literally who the villain was in the second one. Who was yep. supposed to be his nephew or whatever. They just yeah. took his same character, and that was it. And Richard Edinburgh um, was like, Steven, I'll appear back, but only if I get to be in a bed for most of my scenes. Right. Yeah, exactly. He's going to arm wrestle me, you bastard. <laughs> well, also, credit to um, Jurassic Park 2 in this respect. They take his death in the book and apply it to Peter Stormare in a better way. Yeah, I would agree. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because they basically do the same thing, uh, but it works better for Pierce Stormare, because you can believe him as, like, a mercenary who's a piece of shit to dinosaurs, and then gets his comeuppance. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. he gets it rough in that book. Oh, everyone, yeah. gets it, everyone gets it so rough in the dinosaurs who don't deserve it. I'm like, what, what, like, and this is the same dude who's making a Westworld movie, and I'm like, you really love your violence in theme parks, buddy. Yeah, just theme parks going wrong. He's just like, would Michael Crichton as a child go to Disneyland and just like, I want all this to fuck up. Let's right. fuck it up. I want all to fall out of Space Mountain. I want the Pirates of the Caribbean to storm and pillage. He's running around and shit. Anarchy! Anarchy! <laughs> hey, don't spoil Westworld Season 3, alright? Right. Hey, p- please keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle. Rebellion! I think we should talk about the real villain of the movie. The Mr. DNA. <laughs> Go oh, on. guy. When he says dinosaurs, it drives me nuts the way he you says it. You mean dinosaurs? Yeah, dinosaurs. I hate it so bad. <laughs> and that's how you get a dinosaur. Like, oh, get the fuck out of here, man. Well, that's part of the world building I really love about the theme park oh, element. Oh, me too. It's great. Is that it's so realistic to the corniness of a theme park attraction. And even the fact that it's just like, oh, can we get out of these seats? It's more like a ride. You can't really get out, which is something you always wonder, especially as a kid, especially in those sort of, like, um, those particular attractions in Disney World that are just like, here's one room, and then we go over, there's another room. Don't you like these rooms? Can we go inside the rooms? No. You can watch them. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, especially I love when uh, Attenborough goes up to the the queue, just like, oh, wait, this is my part where he talks to himself on the screen and mm-hmm. awkwardly has the cue cards and stuff. Yeah, that's part of the thing I was saying about his character. Like, he has that enthusiasm in every, mostly every scene he has when he's trying to introduce the park. And, like, he's talking to, like, grown adults, too. He's not talking to children. Except, like, sure, like, his own children are there, but, like, it's mostly just adults and fucking, and, and like, the, 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 the lawyer. Like, it's, like, <laughs> like he's, he has so much care into, into every scene he's in. Yes, um, but let's talk about my favorite 
uh, side character, especially considering uh, rewatching this movie more and more, has to be Nedry. That's played by oh, Matt Knight. He's so great. Is he's so great. Who, especially watching it now, feels very uh, prescient in terms of asshole hacker dude who wants to fuck everyone over. Feels oh, kind such a piece of shit, too. <laughs> feels timeless, and in a way that um, still really works, especially he's just like, I do so much work, and you pay me so little, and it's like, your financial problems are your own, Mr. Nedry. Um, mm-hmm. is, it's so good. And also, of course, the scene where he um, gets the shaving cream kit for the first time, and he makes a sound yeah. that sounds like he's a squeaker toy that just ran I know. out. <laughs> I know. That whole scene was great, though. Dotson, we got Dotson here. See, See nobody, nobody cares. cares. See, cares. <laughs> <laughs> do you agree with our sentiments, Sam? I agree with Simons, and I hate this. Here's the thing. People keep talking about those kids being in trouble. You should fucking be angry at Nedry for allowing that to happen. Nedry's the whole reason why this movie happens in the first place. Fuck him. <laughs> I'm glad he got fucking shot out by that officer. Like, I'm glad that happened. Catch, stupid. Oh. <laughs> uh, see the stick? Yeah, fetch the stick, stupid. <laughs> it's it's a he is a great metaphor for man's hubris in this movie in terms of just like I can get around these dinosaurs I've been in a computer lab and I've been studying how their security systems work I know how to get around this no you don't you're gonna get your ass poisoned on this whole movie yeah. is just dinosaurs exploiting mankind's uh, weaknesses because you have that you have the, the scene later the clever girl scene where it's just like yeah I'm a dinosaur but I'm smarter than you so here I am sneaking up and just clawing your head out and you know, that's another great thing, is that the dinosaurs do feel, more so than monsters, feel like characters. Exactly. And what I really love is that even though they're quote-unquote monsters of the movie, Spielberg sort of has an, a Switzerland-style treatment of them. They're, and, you know, they're very in the middle. They want to like, attack these people just merely for the sake of food, but it's not out of any like, malice or clear evil and sinisterness. They're just like, yeah, you know, we want to eat. To allude back to the question you asked me earlier, and that's a beautiful point. The sequels did have that, mm-hmm. like with the Spinosaurus in Part Three, and then with the whatever the fuck I don't I forget what it's even called the the Ignoramus new Rex. Jurassic World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And then you know even the the Velociraptors, you know, blue and all that stuff. They overdid it. They way overdid it. Instead of just the classic, these animals have been extinct forever. They wake up in this environment. They don't know where they are. They're just defending themselves. Like I love the Spinosaurus in three, but he just becomes the, the the predator at a certain point, where he's just like he's always stalking these humans in every scene. No one can hear that fucking thing well, ex- except stomach. Until the satellite phone goes on. That's where they can hear that giant fucking thing coming through the woods with this big ass dorsal fin. <laughs> I don't know. You know, controversial opinion. I prefer three to two, even though they're both okay. bad movies. I agree. Is that controversial? Because I don't like two at all. And I think three is at least fun. Three gets way more shit, and two is just like, well, what about the trailer scene? And, like, five other scenes that are good. Sure. Like, there, there are a few handfuls. It's not the worst Spielberg movie. There's also a gymnastics scene. So that, There's true, there's that. And also, more importantly, shit. a rare example of Jeff Goldblum just not giving a shit. At all. But that's so or rare. And Julianne Moore. And Julianne Moore not giving a shit either. No, and then William H. Macy making the best out of garbage dialogue in 3 is so much yep. more fascinating. <laughs> or Taylor Leone 
I don't know. But anyway, we're getting off track. So, um, <laughs> with Jurassic Park and the animals, I think the best example of that really is the T-Rex, who kind of becomes a hero at the end, but it's more just out of a sake of, like, he doesn't give a shit about the humans. He's just like, I want to eat these fucking raptors that are just causing noise. It's, it's, it's a great example of, like, he's an iconic hero of sorts for the franchise, but in this movie, he's more of just, like, chaotic neutral of sorts. As, as she should be, because I think the T-Rex is served best when she has her own paths in mind. She she is the the, the, the dinosaur with no name, if, you, if I may say, in that she just goes wherever she needs to be for her own purpose, as opposed to the world where she just becomes, like, a huge hero at the end. I'm like, look, everyone root for the T-Rex, and look, her, her buddy, her body velociraptors are there to help her out. It's like, <laughs> and, they, and they nod at each other because they're friends. Yeah. Oh God! <laughs> I I know you. I see you. I know I who you are. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no! The real you. Now, if we went that far with it, that'd be way more interesting than what they did. That, that's yeah. amazing. If it turns into a fucking r- rumble match at the end, it would have been awesome with all the dinosaurs just chipping in to fight Indominus Rex. That would have been dumber, but would have been actually more far more interesting than what we got. Anyway, I want to get back to the T-Rex just because the thing about the T-Rex is that every shot the T-Rex is in is is gorgeous. It's amazing. There's not a single shot of this movie with the T-Rex that looks bad. Yeah, and even, you know, the CG effects, obviously, they're 25 years uh, dated. There are points where you kind of obviously feel like, okay, these are early CG effects. But at the same time, uh, they never feel inconsistent in this world. You never feel like that shot looks worse than the other. No, they don't. No, yeah. and it's Yeah, uh, I agree. And I think that's the CG that holds up the best, is because there are points where you see, like, even Jurassic World has that. There are moments where, like, wow, that is a beautiful CG effect, and other points where it's like, this is garbage. And it's there interesting, the, the only uh, consistent thing is the few animatronics we get, like the brontosaurus who dies. Adam, are there any other sort of character-driven dinosaur moments that you really enjoy? I love the whole scene with the Triceratops, where it's down, and, you know, she gets right up on it, she's checking it out, and then just... The comedic payoff at the end. Just, I, ever since I was a kid, I loved that scene. You know, that is one huge pile of shit. Yeah, you're going to want to wash your hands before uh, eating anything. <laughs> 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 no, I love that scene. Um, and then the kitchen scene with the with the kids and the raptors. That was so tense. I mean, it's still pretty intense, really, when you think about it. I mean, it, it's there's nothing in this movie for me that doesn't still hold up. I'm willing to forward, look past, you know, dated special effects just because of what they're trying to do. Right, because the characters, like Sam mentioned, really hold the movie together, including yeah. the characters of the dinosaurs, who are brought right, exactly. by the still impressive CG work that, even if it's dated in terms of its look, mainly works because the characters of the dinosaurs feel so real, and especially mm-hmm. when they're animatronics, and also, of course, all the human characters have a similar thing like that. Even as thankless a role as it is, Sam Jackson gives so much to the <laughs> lead computer He really does! Yeah. He really does in those couple scenes. God damn it, I hate this hacker crap. The thing that makes me laugh is they do an intense close-up of his lips as he's just saying, hur, hur, hur. and like, <laughs> god damn, they make that look tense too. That cigarette is his favorite prop. He just uh-huh. loves utilizing that cigarette anytime he can. And this is young, hungry Sam Jackson. This is a year before Pulp Fiction, so you can tell that like he's like bringing a lot to that part. Even just a moment of like, uh-uh-uh, he didn't say the magic word. Please! So much of it. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, and also his presence with the arm even works where you don't see him die, but that arm, uh, despite how cheap of Beck that is, it still really is palpable of like, oh, fuck, they ate <laughs> Sam Jackson. Yeah. The only thing I was missing was a Velociraptor holding up, like, saying, hey, how are you doing? It's like that shot from It, where he's, like, eating the arm and he just starts waving with it. Yeah. <laughs> Adam mentioned the, the Triceratops scene. Uh, and that's the key thing. This is an important thing. When you're ma- ever making a monster movie, your emphasis shouldn't be just about making a monster movie. You should also be focused on trying to make those monsters, not just monsters, but characters. Because that is the thing I keep seeing, even with the sequels. I, I enjoyed 3, but the one thing 3 didn't have was that, that bond between where the, the actors, the characters worked off the dinosaurs, the main thrust of these movies. It had once it had that one scene where they just looked at the brachiosaur and, and the other dinosaurs, but that was it. Here you get a scene with the brachiosaur where they interact with the brachiosaur and they build off character development off of it. And that's what you should do. It's like you should expand these characters in a way where, hey, we got downtime. We let's ha- let's just reminisce and just talk about our current our past lives and where we're going after this. And th- that's a huge thing to keep in mind when you're ever you're making any sort of monster movie. Is is pretty much that. It's a character moment to brief, which you need, especially in a movie like this, where you're trying to mix the awe with the horror, the terror, and all that stuff. That's a, that's a great point. Is that the the Triceratops scene really does that? Where you see, um, you know, Ellie trying to examine what exactly is wrong with the dinosaur. You see the kids obviously falling in love with it. You see Jeff Goldblum kind of awkwardly reacting as Adam mentioned. Or my favorite bit of it is Alan Grant going on top of the dinosaur and letting it breathe and make it move up and down. It's a childlike, yeah, awesome. wonderful moment that added a sincerity to his character that showed you kind of the edges kind of warming up a bit, but in a way that felt real for his character of a paleontologist who's discovering dinosaurs, living and breathing for the first time here. It's it's wonderful, and um, it's it definitely... And also, it's that dinosaur barely moves, but it feels real. It feels like it's actually sick. You feel genuine sympathy for it. Yeah, that sense of humanity that you need in those scenes is important. So, let's go into final thoughts about Jurassic Park. Sam, our guest, go ahead. Jurassic Park is a classic. It's not the Theodora Rex, but I will say, <laughs> I will say. No, it is not. It's not that. That's it's very not, true. It's, it's that's true. true. It's not. Jurassic Park is a very special movie in that every time I watch it, it's always a grand time. And I think the movie is shot in a way where even with its heavily reliant CG moments, it still feels very theatrical and still feels like classic. And that's a very rare term for me to throw around, considering they're playing movies that try to have that aesthetic around that time. But this nails it from beginning to end, including the the the, the one scene with the, the glass, so the one that like everyone loves to use, even up to this day, is the, the the glass of water with the ripple effect. It's an incredibly powerful moment, and it even works better because it builds up so well toward the T Rex reveal. Yeah, also a shout-out to the fact that that's a great example in this movie where, despite how much, obviously, everyone loves the John Williams score, there's so many moments in this movie that I forgot don't have any score at all. Like that whole sequence. Not a bit. They knew when to use it and when not to. Exactly. You need to know when to stop playing your fucking music because it's just like you can't have a T-Rex chasing you and have it always be like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Adam. Uh, I mean, Sam said it best. This movie is a classic. It is absolutely... A classic. It's the first blockbuster that I can really remember. Um, I know I saw the original Batman at the show and stuff, but I was really young. I think I was like five when that came out. But I remember this one. I remember the hype. I remember how crazy it was and how it was just the biggest movie ever. 
and I know I saw it at least twice at the show, and I've seen it I don't know how many times since. There's not one thing about this movie that I could that I'd be like, eh, I could do without that. I think everything in it's fine the way it is. I don't think anything needs to be added. I don't think anybody needs to be changed. And I don't think that there should have been more than just this one. I think this by itself would have been a perfect standalone summer blockbuster movie. But Adam, what about a billion dollars in grossing for a nostalgic sequel? Of course. Well, that's why we're getting the fucking shitty sequel to the last one. Because it made so much money. Everybody knows that movie is fucking horseshit. But yet, here comes the sequel. Because you ate it up. Because fuck you, you like dinosaurs. And you like Jurassic Park. I didn't go see that. You love Baryonyx. I know you do. I like Bryce Dallas Howard. So I just went to support her. Who might like, be another Baryonyx? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree with everybody's sentiments here. But something else that I think really, especially works about this movie is that it's uh, it's a great example of Spielberg as a showman with a humanist sort of attitude. And I think that's really what works about it is that you, you really, as Sam mentioned, there's a human element that really makes the wonder really expand really well, which is something that's missing from all those other movies is the human characters feel a lot more sort of soulless and a lot more archetypal without actually adding brief character moments that make them feel alive. I like Chris Pratt. I like Bryce Dallas Howard. Uh, they don't have any real character in Jurassic World, I would argue. And I think that's something that all of these people have. And it's not something of just like, oh man, it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Why did you chill in comparison to Jurassic World or Jura- Lost World or uh, Jurassic Park 3? I'm not expecting any of these movies to really achieve that same height. But even being good is a hard hurdle for them because they don't have that simple core element. And it's something that Spielberg does not just with how the characters interact with each other, but we didn't mention a lot of some of the great innovative camera work, like the innovation of... There's a scene where they see the brontosaurus for the first time, one of the classic iconic moments, and there's a shot that's of, like, they where they would be, like, shin level, the camera would be, watching as, like, you know, Ellie and Alan Grant look up at the brontosaurus. I rewatched that documentary, and it alerted me to something that I just didn't realize... In prior contexts where, like, you'd have an optical effect, the camera would be far too big to ever achieve that shot. In that way, this is not hyperbolic, that is literally on level with in Citizen Kane them doing, like, a floor-level shot. Because that never fucking happened before. That's that's just how innovative this movie is, even without the effects work. The camera work in combination with that really makes it something otherworldly in terms of what it can really achieve, and really give you that human perspective that makes you invest in it so much. It's not just how great the interaction is between all the characters, it's also just in the way that Spielberg achieves giving you this human perspective on not just the big environment of a park, but also the big environment of monsters walking on the Earth again after 165 million years. By making you feel like you were there, and the the other thing I want to mention, the sequels are going straight for being an action flick. Each one of these are trying to emphasize on the action, and that's not what Jurassic Park is. People have to think, it's like, oh, well, it's an action horror movie. But it's not necessarily that. It's a mixture of those, but it's mostly this suspense film, but with a lot of added character moments that are, some are slow, some are quick, but it all is well paced together in a way that helps it make what it is. Whereas the the sequels forgot that and don't even try to be anything more than that. They the problem is that they de-doubled, they could dribble down on just these dinosaurs to a point now where like the dinosaurs 
don't feel like they're they're dinosaurs they're just straight up monsters and that's my biggest problem is like these are animals you're dealing with and you're you're making them feel like they're just another xenomorph or a predator and i don't really like that i don't really care for it i think the best course of action for your sequels is just to know understand what made the first one good and go a different route like i'm not talking like uh, just just mild differences i'm talking drastically different in a way that would surprise people rather than just be like oh it's another like we have to skip the park because everything's gone wrong but fuck that let's just do nostalgic references to the first movie because you remember that uh eventually we will have uh the dinosaurs on your dinosaur tour uh yes <laughs> yes eventually we will i love that we just i just criticized that and then you just literally quoted the movie so we just completely looked like hypocrites hey yep that was the point yep and on that note on that sad hypocritical bitter note that's the end of our double feature discussion for the evening uh before we go we've got some feedback to read interestingly um Great credit uh, to all of you out there who are fans of us. Uh, we posted a little bit about, um, in honor of this episode, about the best and worst movies uh, featuring dinosaurs in them. And we got a lot of responses. We really appreciate that. Including from uh, Heather Thomas. Hmm. I wonder who that might be. Uh, Maybe. Might be my wife. Adam, <laughs> are you wearing a wig? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I knew it. Who says, uh, worst Theodore X, best, I'm sorry, LMFAO, Land Before Time. I, I don't think that's a, a sorry-worthy thing. That's a, that's a great yeah, choice. I don't think so. I think that makes sense. I mean, I think we even mentioned that on our last episode. Yeah, when we talked about Don Bluth. Uh, that, that movie still holds yeah. up really well. It's a really underrated movie, I feel. Even more as time goes on. Yep. And the best Diana Ross song ever, right, Sam? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tom, uh, no way. <laughs> we don't have the right, Sam. Not yet. Um, oh, that's... Next up, from Luke McBride. Uh, worst Godzilla 98, the Spinosaurus from Jurassic Park 3, Sharp Tooth from Land Before Time, um, but best, Jurassic Park, and also Journey to the Center of the Earth 1959. That was an interesting choice. I didn't expect that. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. That guy's... That's a very... <laughs> that's a very fascinating list of, like, just, like, bad dinos versus good ones. I don't know. You could say to reverse in certain instances, because I feel like some of those dinosaurs... Like, the, my problem is, like, with the early stop-motion dinosaurs, especially in the, during the 50s, is that they all pretty much were just three dinosaurs. It was like, here's your Apatosaurus, here's your T-Rex, here's your, your Stegosaurus or slash Triceratops. It, it wasn't very flexible, and they all had the same look to them, and it just it was just bland. It wasn't until Jurassic Park happened where it was just like, wow, these feel very distinct and refreshing. <laughs> That's true. King Kong kind of set the precedent, and everybody just kind of followed that. They just basically yeah. all that. Yeah, they, they basically did. I would actually say uh, what Toe did with Godzilla uh, was interesting because a lot of their big kaiju are based off certain dinosaurs. Like, Anguirus is based off, uh, like, uh, like kind of like Ankylosaurus, Rodan, Pterodactyl, and um, Gorosaurus is just fucking Gorosaurus from the King Kong movie. So it was just like, you have a mixture of different dinosaur designs there that are all cool, including Godzilla himself. Very true. Very true. Um, next feedback from Oliver Sloan, who says, a favorite Valley of Guanji from Harryhausen, Jurassic Park, the original, and uh, Ava, any Dave Allen stop-motion dinosaurs. Not favorite? None. I love any and all cinema dinosaurs. You you get a thumbs up, my friend. Has that motherfucker seen Theodore Rex? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you get a thumbs up. <laughs> Oliver, tell us. Tell us how you feel about Theodore Rex. We'll read on the next yeah. episode. Absolutely. I'll, and if you if you tell us, I'll give you a free uh, a blueprint for how to make your own cooking machine. <laughs> what everyone needs in their lives. Next from Nate Thomas. More uh, your family oak just coming about? 
Yeah, that's my that's my brother. Each person's just Adam, but with a different like uh, accessory. Yeah, <laughs> he's the real Peter Sellers of our podcast. Nate says, "Dude, the Harry has a T Rex from Kong killed by ripping its jaw open." I love the Dilophosaur that killed Nedry. Also satisfying. Fetch stupid. Yes, we, we quoted that as well. Uh, that's that's very true. Um, also, uh, with the Kong, um, I'm gonna put on my nerd glasses. Well, actually, that would be Willis O'Brien who did the effects work for King Kong, not Harry Oh, Housen. God. <laughs> there you go, folks. Th- though Harryhausen did say that Kong was the inspiration for him getting into stop motion. So without Willis O'Brien, you wouldn't have Harryhausen dinosaurs that happened later. So yep. you're both kind of right. <laughs> sure, we'll do that. One way uh, more than the other. <laughs> um, our, our next feedback comes from uh, Alex... Mistretta, uh, who says, Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend, it's kind of a love-hate yes. thing. I'm God. so glad. Baby is a movie people don't bring up enough. And I think it's amazing because I haven't seen I it. I think it's time. brought up just enough. <laughs> but no, I, like, I haven't seen Baby in the longest time, and I've always been curious to go back. But I remember when I watched Baby, it was like most surreal experience. Because it's like, dinosaurs are real, and they're here now. <laughs> oh, God. Maybe keep those childhood memories alive, Sam. Maybe I'm don't open. And then uh, Brian Kane said, "Not from a film, uh, but Vertigo from Primal Rage, the best character in the worst fighting game." Sam, you're a big video game enthusiast. Would you agree with this or argue it? Primal Rage is just a Mortal Kombat ripoff, but it is has some of the best like dinosaur designs that are very unique. Uh, like you have the, the your your Scorpion Sub Zero uh, T Rexes in those games, and they're really cool. I've always wanted a, a remake of those games, a la Killer Instinct, like what they did recently with Killer Instinct. Thank you for everyone who shared that feedback. We definitely want to keep doing that more, and we love hearing from you guys once again. And you can do that either on our Facebook page, which is where we posted that. We also post stuff on the Twitter at DEDBpod. Um, you can also email us at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. Um, you can even message us on our private Twitter accounts at not the Who's Tommy or Adam. Malekithfan6969. So great. We also want to thank some people before we leave. Chris Oliver, who does the music for our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Also, a big shout-out to Emily Scarda, who has our fresh new art. Uh, We commissioned that from her. She accepts commissions over at uh, fiverrwith2rs.com slash eescarda. And also, we want to thank Sam Bertuxen for coming on the show. Sam, you have anything to plug, anything to mention about your presence on the interwebs? Is that cookies? Also, you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> it's mostly tweeting about cookies. That's mostly, mostly tweeting about cookies. Yep. And we also want to encourage you all to subscribe to us on iTunes, rate and review us to give the show more visibility. But uh, on that note, gentlemen, we must leave into the prehistoric age, into the sunset, like the T-Rex himself. Uh, just watch out for that banner coming down. I said move! It's coming! Oh, fuck. <laughs> Good night, everybody. See ya.